Chapter 1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was Lily who first noticed the brewing storm in the universal ether of which Earth is a minuscule participant. She had been the first to exist, and she hoped she would be the last to die. Existence as ordained by God and the devil in the instance of the Big Bang. When good and evil were created as opposites, and when plus balanced minus. She, a prime mover of the 4% of matter that exists, and of the 96% dark energy and dark matter that does not. This disturbance was an invisible strangulation upon man, who felt nothing. She surveyed him on the tiny earth, a void in empty space, who artificially filled himself with feelings and emotions. The cleverest species of this world, or so he thought. She saw that man was 100% certain that it owned and controlled its destiny. The poor fools. Lily knew the true answer. Pure vanity was an ill-conceived confidence. Pink Bermudas and a yellow polo shirt clung to Sam Murray as he scanned the computer printout in front of him. He smacked his head onto the pile, creating a speckled shroud that stared back at him, mocking his efforts. Still, as the silence, he listened for guidance, a gift from his god, but the control room denied him. For the first time in five days the drone of the aircon had petered out and his discordant team had escaped to the fresh Swiss air. The dark art of colliding particle matter had been left with the boss, whose blackened feet were flung onto his desk. Bemused by the test results, he watched his blue flip-flops dangle off the end of his toes. Sam pivoted his heels left, then right, a human metronome to calm his fear. Crashing forward, he slammed his laptop closed and rolled his chair away from the table at speed. Sam addressed the roof through his grimace. Hell, there's got to be a logical reason. He stood and wobbled. There was no reply. Slapping his dead thighs, the words boomed around the dingy porter cabin, mocking his efforts. It hung, dusty and grey, in the caves, set on a heavy framework of girders. A low-tech demoralising shell, a husk containing the kernel, the large Hadron Collider, the highest of high-tech instruments known to man. The dreariness was marginally improved by the lighting. His top half was sodium-bright, at his bottom half a dull orange. Looking out, he saw the giant lights cabled to the invisible roof, like the sun hung above the earth. Logic, only logic counts. Nothing can be so impossible. He stretched to press his palms against the scant window, staring at his small world through the greasy smears. Turning away with a sigh, he slid back into his chair and rubbed his eyes with a damp shirt collar. Searching for inspiration, but there was none to be gathered from the place itself. Sam's hand hovered over the phone. How to break the news to his boss? What would his best friend ask him? Because Bert Linster knew everything. The god of particle physics and the discoverer of the Higgs boson particle in 2012. Sam's chest was tight and his breathing shallow. He finally picked up his mobile. Bert would know what to do. He remembered their time since Manchester University. They were still a perfect working couple, despite their very different marriages and disparate lifestyles. 
Sam had left home in Planet at six precisely. The continuum of time was important in his theoretical world, an exact reality based on a future event or a very instant past, namely his alarm clock. It took nearly two hours by rail to reach CERN in Geneva. The European Organisation for Nuclear Research and the Large Hadron Collider, or LHCB. The entrance was sighted above the 27 kilometres torus that lay hidden in the earth, his expensive train set where particles were collided at close to the speed of light and absolute zero, minus 273 degrees C, a replication of when the universe began, or so the theory dictated. He dumped his mobile in exchange for an elastic band and pinged it through the hot air of the LHCB. The B represented beauty, the type of protons that were generated in their billions by the collider. But it wasn't very beautiful in his hole, and the lure of a family weekend poisoned his latest analysis. Results that needed to be exact before sharing it with an exacting Bert. He had compared the background Higgs boson count that morning with results from when they had discovered it. He needed the static level to calibrate the detector for the new project. The first result was nonsensical, so he had spent another six hours to check it again and to double-check his method. It was still grossly inflated. He belched, his guts ached, and he thought again about Bert. Successfully finding the glue that holds the universe together was never enough to satisfy Bert's craving for knowledge. His overwhelming desire to understand mankind's start and also its potential end. Bert had a new theory that there was less glue and fewer HBs. Sam had told his wife, Brownie, that it was like boiling rice in water and Bert wanted to know what happened if there was less and less water a theory that Sam had christened Back to Big Bang, a pun on the Back to the Future film, the implication being the theoretical impossibility of a stupid theory. He had told his wife this, but never Bert. Sam thought it was a waste of CERN time, the existence of a fifth world, a parallel universe created at the Big Bang, was of no value to society. But the HB discoverer was famous enough to have as much funding as he desired and that made Sam jealous as he struggled on with his old and now unfashionable research. He sighed and stretched his leg muscles from a horizontal squat, threatened by the fifty computer eyes staring at him. There was a perfect silence in his small cage as the screens watched his every move. He could hear his heart palpitating as he contemplated the right action. On Monday, the team would recommence the next set of experiments. They would be colliding matter and antimatter hydrogen particles to create mini black holes. Logically, that gave him the rest of the weekend to collect new data on the background level of HBs. He nodded to himself. He was glad no one else had seen the latest iteration. He didn't want wild rumours circulating around the campus. Dragging his wild grey hair into a ponytail, he secured his locks using an elastic band that lay with countless others spewed across his desk. Ammunition that remained to be flicked at the inert beasts. Sam stabbed speed dial 4 on his mobile and waited. The clipped but soft Mancunian accent answered without any preamble. 
You never ring me. Never. Only emails. Bert, I think we have a problem. Sam rubbed his red eyes again. He thought about the cold beer sitting in the fridge at home, the laughter and fun of his two kids, and the love of his wife. He decided the beer would come first to help lower his stress levels. A few beers, not one or two. What? Sam accepted his friend was invariably rude, an introverted personality who lived by his rules. That was his mate, Bert, the scientist who didn't really care about much other than his particle universe and his garden. It went through Sam's mind that Bert's attention span followed the Pareto rule. Particles were 80% of his thoughts, and his plants, wife, and kids in that priority fitted into the 20% remaining. Lately, Sam had noticed an imbalance. Bert was giving even less time to his wife, Natalia. Well, at least according to Bryony, and she had recently told him the discord was worsening. Like their breakdown before, and that worried him. Sam sighed. This can't be discussed on the phone, Bert. It's between you and me. He gushed on. Can we meet? Maybe a beer on your veranda later tonight? What can't be said over the phone? Trust me, Bert. I always have, apart from my stag night. Sam dropped his forehead into his hand and waited. Tonight is a really bad night. The kids are due home from boarding school soon. Natalia's demanding my time for a special supper, family time, blah. Sam jerked his head upwards, clipping his words. I said, trust me, Bert. She keeps reminding me that I'm on holiday and all that stuff. You jammy bastard, you're so damn possessive about your time. What about mine? It's six in the evening and I need a kip. Bert didn't bother responding. Sam could hear the wall clock ticking away. Of course he wanted to be with his own family, but this discovery could be monumental. Okay, I have a better idea. We can chat at the christening tomorrow. It gives me time to do more tests. Job done. No worries, but you know I hate holidays, so if you want, I could drive over to CERN in an hour or two. Yeah, it would be more interesting for you than your family, wouldn't it? He heard Bert grunt. Look, you mustn't upset Natalia. KK. And it allows me time to think about the third set of results due in about two hours. He paused, still tempted to meet up. So, I'll sleep on it, thanks. Bert laughed. I can't wait to hear your big secret. Are you aiming for a Nobel expose? The Higgs boson doesn't really exist. It was a glitch in the data. Sam was too tired to listen to Bert's flippancy. If only it was that simple. Bert interrupted him. Tell me the problem then. Come on, pal. Nothing can be that serious. Look, it's about the Higgs boson. I'm seeing high background levels and that's impossible because, if true, it would affect how our universe is stuck together. Yeah. Well, I guess you're checking out the reasons why, Sam. Yes, but... He was talking to his boss. He decided to defer conversation. Listen, Bert, I'll check everything again and see you tomorrow at the christening. Sam, remember, nothing can be that important. Just go home to Bryony and the kids and leave until Monday. We can talk then. You're all heart. Listen, sit at the back of the church and alone because 
I think we should keep this confidential, yeah? I got that first time round. You really think the results are correct? Could be. Sam touched the iPhone 8 to cut the conversation and looked up to the third tier of data screens. They glowed to life as he reset the test algorithms on the HB detector before heading towards the vending machines for an umpteenth coffee. A third extrapolation would certainly focus Bert's mind, unless, of course, it was all an aberration. He sighed again. I hope to God it is. He quickly crossed himself whilst murmuring the Holy Trinity. Pressing speed dial one, he began apologising to his wife for his continued absence with a deep Christian sincerity. She gazed upon the Swiss Riviera with disdain. She mocked its inhabitants and the endless visitors and had done so since its conception in the Belle Epoque. She saw the mortals were fools. It was not their perceived paradise, a heaven on earth protected by their imagined gods. It was hers. The warmth of the early evening was sliding down the hill to the lake, and a damp chill spread from the mountains above to rest on grass and the mere mortal. Bert lay on his back in his garden, high above the town of Montreux, and dreamed of his universal model until nature disturbed him. The plant spoke gently and persuasively. I have something to tell you, Bert. Sleep on if you want, but listen to me in your dreaming. Bert's head lolled to the left side. His eyes remained shut, but his being listened to Lily. She raised her peltate leaves to amplify her message. They caressed the sun as she absorbed the last ultraviolet fleeing the Alps. I know you can hear me, Bert. You mustn't deny it. Wake now and realize my truth. He was in a shallow dream. His balding head was red, brazed by the rays which flooded into late May. She knew he could see her. A pure white lily through his closed eyes, a bright retinal image of floral beauty. Fifty perfect petals of translucent angel wings reaching towards heaven, clasping gold fingers of flaming stamen brighter than the sun. She smiled at him, her face an impossibly divine countenance for a flower. Lily whispered into the zephyr of a breeze that made her tremble in trepidation of a new era dawning. She sang her oldest cantata of nature. Her voice pushed black striations across the silvered water, and the reverberations gently penetrated his inner ear and attacked his mind. Lily foretold the future, factually and scientifically, as a scientist would like to hear it. He lay inert. The olive-green fronds of crenellated leaves shaded his bare feet that teetered on the bank of the Etang. We need your help to save us, Bert. Logical and remorseless, replaceable by none. We lilies were the first eukaryote, exceptional in the creation. Now we will bloom one last summer, but so will the inadequates, leaving our spores to conserve us as the last species on earth, the last to suffer death and annihilation. Bert grunted. She saw his eyelids were still closed, so she pitched her voice to the depths of the Etang. We need your help. 
She wanted him to oust his work from his mind for a brief moment to listen to her, to avoid hiding within his subconscious, between interactions and quantum particle solutions. She breathed on him, making him squirm on the harsh prairie grass. A cloud of pollen rose and drifted above his bare toes, exploding from the brown spires of the dock leaves under his heel. A seed of grass released a preemptive burst of pollen, but selfishly retained the majority of its four million grains. She looked around the lake and its guardian peaks towering above, whilst the minority human slept on. The majority, Earth's nature, infiltrated his clothes on the warm spring day. But now she requested access to his mind. She flowed into him. Humankind has one season to secrete themselves below the soil and shelter like our spores. Your intelligence can help you before our finality, but not after our demise, as we end as one. Come and hide in the depths with us. Be a part of nature for the second time since the beginning. Only you, Bert, will understand man's ending and tell the truth to the world. This is our will and your destiny. She touched his soul, a gentle caress from her stamen, and she momentarily moved him. Bert shuddered and woke. His heart trembled and his eyes gazed about wildly, searching the natural pool. Bert! Bert! Where are you? His wife Natalia called him from the shade of the balcony. Her voice carried into the light and rested heavily on the garden. Muscovite and strident, one of the ruling classes demanding attention. Lily listened and watched carefully. The being's wife was important to her plan. Are you going for Ali and Josh at the railway? Da? I want a bath and you've disappeared, Bert. He got the gist of a Russian expression after the clang of the cowbell had died away. Love is cruel when I married a goat. Between the harsh phrases, her devotion to him poured across the red and purple heads of the wildflowers. Love swirled in a froth of colour wrestling with the nodded green spikes of the prairie and doubly touched the emotions of her disturbed husband. He shook his head, then pushed himself upright using his arms stretched straight behind him. Bert refocused on the vibrant Atang. It was a secluded and ancient pond, nestling into a small cliff of limestone and fed by a hidden spring, a small compression for the lake perch to be imprisoned for the Victorian houseguests. She watched him search for her. Had she made contact? He looked behind him through the avenue of marching beech trees and the dishevelled cedar of Lebanon planted by Gertrude Jekyll. It was difficult to tell. Bert turned to his left, where the jagged, snowy peaks of the Donc de Midi guarded the verdant entrance to the chequered flats of the Rhone Valley. Finally, he looked down into the right, where the croissant-shaped sheen of Lac Léman baked for thirty kilometres until it steamed into the blue haze above Evian. Only the rich and famous afforded to holiday in Montreux in the 1800s. Staying for the season, a few built chalets like his home. Now the Riviera teemed with the local French from across the lake and hordes of Japanese from across the oceans. Bert turned his attention back to the pool, 
she had succeeded. He squatted to look more closely. On the right bank, the downwind side, was a group of lilies. Each was a perfect circle with an exact V cut, a missing slice of mischief. Three hues of leaves were layered together, an obvious and predominant green, an odd red and a dying yellow. They resembled an overlapping and lopsided pile of plates. The traffic light colours controlled the growth and decline of life, but in the ascendance, on the top of the pile, was Lily, a huge green frond of leaves, darker than the rest and twice the size. Slightly raised above them, she was an elevated being. The elevated human shouted again, Can you hear me, Bert? He turned towards the chalet and responded through cupped hands. Yes, course, my dear. But you're so lazy, was his breathless reply to Natalia as he struggled to his feet. He shouted again, louder and sharper, to be sure he had been heard. He could see her on the strip of dark brown cedar clinging to the faded pink screed of walls. Of course I can, Natalia. He stretched to the sky, his shoulder muscles creaking as the hands swung at speed to his sides. Bending quickly, he slipped his right foot into the sandal and used his forefinger to prise the heel into the warmth of the chamois. As he reached for the opposite sandal, he looked her straight in the face. Gently, he leaned forward, seduced by her beauty, but aware of falling as his heart beat faster. There were no petals, merely a lament in the odorless kiss. As he thrust his foot into the leather of his left sandal, he accidentally folded the heel double. Talking to plants, what an illogical idea! He stamped twice to denounce her while stumbling away. Then he turned his back on Lily, certain in his waking consciousness that a plant couldn't talk, and marched to the house to find the keys to his Mercedes. Lily commanded the kingdom plante to watch him closely, to absorb knowledge from this being. They could feel him pass, now she had touched him. Their atoms moved, disturbed by his charge, and they told her what he was, his particles, his charges. The selective, she called him, selected by her. She viewed him as consistently human and weak. The wayside plants and trees confirmed what she had thought. His strong back disappeared into the shade of the kitchen door, and they lost his animation. As one, they silently sighed. No humans heard, only Lily. The humans hadn't listened for millennia. But the chuffs heard. The blackbirds spun away into the sky with raucous cries and circled the gigantic cedar in disgust. Their calls were loud enough to drown the still chattering flowers and the calm conversation of the pines. Bert smiled as he approached the yellow Mercedes GT AMG. He patted his hand across the wide rump of the car. His smile widened. He had bought the car as a reflection of his personality. He loved the mirrored glass in which he could see his blue drainpipe jeans and flapping white shirt, ostentatiously styled with the shell pattern. The shirt had been a present from his wife, and he always wore it outside of his trousers to hide his plump tummy. Despite his balding pate, he felt he looked younger than his forty-six years. 
His lack of exercise and his computer-dominated worship of physics had barely affected his appearance since his twenties. He had spent his cash to stay dashing and exciting, ever a student at heart. Bert settled into the black leather cockpit and pumped the starter button. The primal scream from five hundred horsepower of the V8 engine gave him a shot of adrenaline as he accelerated out of the chalet's drive. Roaring through the narrow lanes, he headed for the funicular railway station. Although totally analytical, he could never resist challenging the numerous Swiss speed limits, but always with a measured illegality, biased by the probability of a police trap. His daughter Ali stood with her arms crossed as she leaned against the glass shelter of Glion Station. She was tapping her left fingers in rhythm against the glass and staring straight at him as he pulled up with a tiny skid on a trace of gravel. He smiled back invisibly. Bert always smiled at her, a younger image of her mother. They both had long platinum blonde hair, a wide mouth, and the rarest of eye colours, a verdant green. But Ali was fashionably slim, unlike her mother, who had become fashionably rounded, like a glamorous actress between films. On Ali's right was her twin brother, fifteen-year-old, tie-knot residing at chest level with muddy trousers. Josh sat collapsed on top of his Nike duffel bag that had been carelessly thrown onto the gravel. He didn't hear his father arrive because the red headphones enclosed the Metallica music which reverberated around his skull and thrust everything else onto the conceptual horizon. Ali turned slightly and kicked him hard on the thigh. With a glance at the arrival and a nod of his brown tousled hair, he bounced to his feet. Ali jerked open the murk door and forcibly pushed her brother into the tiny back seat before lowering the front one and sliding gracefully into the bucket. Daddy, won't you come out to our college and collect us on a weekend? Other daddies come. She crossed her arms, pouted her bottom lip and waited for an answer. Bert realised she thought more like her mother every week, but he was still smiling. He loved all his family deeply, foibles and all. Hello, children. How are you? Okay, Daddy. How are you? Have you had a nice few days at home, Daddy? His son kept his head lowered in the rear seat and heard none of the gentle sarcasm. His daughter shrugged her shoulders, waiting for an answer. Firstly, it is to teach you non-dependency, my princess. And secondly, it's a nightmare journey when half of Lausanne and Geneva are heading into the mountains for the weekend. She remonstrated as he pulled away. But I am non-dependent. You and Mummy constantly restrict my freedom. That isn't my problem, it's yours. No, 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 lovely. Our restrictions are because you are very expensive to maintain. Besides which, the other daddies are mostly bodyguards, and we are a normal family, despite your Mummy's oil riches. True? Uh, not true at all. Which bit, lovely? She clutched her steamer tighter into her stomach as he hit a hundred k through the thirty limit of the village. You restrict my freedom and my money, but you sent me to the most expensive school in the world, where I have to maintain my parity. Bert considered her last word, wondering how much parity might cost him. He had always thought his kids should have been sent to the local gymnase, but Natalia had overruled him. Josh, who had now dispensed with one earpiece of his bows, 
had released some thinking time away from the bang-bang of his pleasure. Parity of elementary particles coordinates with the charge, that is, plus or minus, and of course, with time, it helps identify and locate a particle. Alice slapped the vanity mirror down to stare at her brother. Read status instead of parity, then, and stop talking scientific rubbish like Daddy always does. She crossed her arms and resumed her pout. He continued unabashed. Parity means a flip in the coordinates of a particle lying in a three-dimensional space, like seeing something in a mirror. In one way, your statement is therefore correct, i.e. you need to define your location against or above your friends. In another way, you are just trying to impress the sons of sheiks and presidents. She turned quickly and slammed her fist onto his bony leg. You doik, was said to his pale, spotty face. Come on, sis. Didn't even hurt, yeah? She turned back to the forward and present danger and clasped her bag tighter as they skipped over the crest of a narrow bridge. She squirmed deeper into the bucket seat and closed her eyes. Bert decided that he had better release the sibling tension, although he knew they were too old to take note any more. Josh, one, can you stop saying come on all the time, as it actually makes you sound like a doik, and especially don't use it in front of your mother. He heard a low grunt from behind. Two, you should be yourself, princess. Forget peer pressure and be like me. She flicked her hair off her left eye. He caught the movement as he glanced across and he knew it meant, really? Three, your brother explained parity correctly. That means the school is worth every Swiss franc we pay for it. He braked hard, thrusting them forward into their seatbelts. Her reply was unwavering. No, Daddy, you didn't come to the college because you are busy working, even when you are supposedly on holiday. He knew she was right. Mummy always comes at weekends. Bert gave in. That may be true, lovely. He always gave in, at least when he was around, as he had always given in to his beautiful wife. He had met Natalia at the Nobel banquet in the Blue Hall of Stockholm in 1996. She fell in love with him over the lobster, he with her over the Ballotine de Pintade, and their future was sealed over a digestive of Calvados, when they arranged to meet in her room at the Hotel Skepsulum. Their future lifestyle was also determined that evening, mirroring the luxury of the hotel and the delicacy of the rich gastronomy. Bert learned later that Natalia's father, Viktor Suvarov, the Russian oil oligarch, had taken a whole wing at the hotel. At the time, Bert had felt privileged to be one of the 1,300 Nobel guests and in awe of the riches cocooning her. Ali spoke nervously as she swayed left and then right. Just explain to me, she swallowed, what is more important than your princess? Bert glanced in the mirror at his boy. An explanation, please, son. I need to concentrate on. The tyres screeched as they raced around a hairpin. Josh was staring down at a beat hazard on his mobile, whilst listening to ACDC. His answer was therefore an entertainment sideshow. The ability to think in many dimensions emanated from his dad's genes. Daddy is, of course, a physics Nobel laureate. He continues his quest for a parallel universe, even when on holiday. Josh talked without taking a breath and at speed. Bert liked the fact that his son was a chip off the old block. It made him feel very proud. Particles of matter and antimatter were collided based on 20 years of mathematical postulations, 
that other universes can be accessed if you try hard enough. His sister grimaced with boredom as she leaned forward to look for their house. By smashing up quarks, one can achieve nothing less than alchemy, transforming one element into another or creating particles unknown to mere mortals, especially thick sisters. Ali had given up hitting Josh, but she turned and asked him a genuine question. Yes, but what does Daddy actually do? Josh pulled his headphones straight over both ears as he looked down and spoke to his mobile. I don't know. Bert heaved aside his daughter's ignorance. My princess, my team explore matter, energy, space and time. We collide particles head-on that gives us the best information on what makes us, us. Basically, we detect the fleeting detrius as it sprays out from 40 million collisions per second. Got it? She sulked. Of course not. But you never make it simple enough, do you? Yes, I do. But it's not your thing, is it? Look, we are made of atoms that glue together to make molecules. But atoms have so much space between the different particles inside of them. Well, we are 99.9% .9 space. We are empty and truly nothing. Just a bunch of electrons and quarks. You see, we split open the particles we know about and always find something smaller and smaller, but with no prospect of an end. The huge house loomed into view in time for her to avoid any further painful thinking with her 0.1% matter. Bert gently stopped the murk and let the teenagers out near the entrance and then quickly went to park it. His unbridled and constant thoughts were firmly with CERN, even when collecting his children. An email was due in the next half hour to bring him up to date with the day's events on the research campus, and that was his manner from heaven. Bert heard them all chatting in the kitchen, so he tiptoed past into the grand salon. Squinting to lessen the white glare from the tall windows, he stopped and listened. He knew the children wouldn't chat long with him or his wife. Instead, they would race to their bedrooms to text chat with friends via any conceivable electronic apparatus and god-awful app. He threw his mobile onto the settee with a sigh and went outside onto the veranda. Sniffing deeply, he held an appreciative breath as the scent of the wisteria consumed him. Natalia had never understood his love of gardening, the marvel of creation, of seeds growing into plants. For Bert, it reminded him of the expansion of the universe, from virtually nothing to something huge and complicated. He crapped his way down the steps. At the bottom, he paused and gently caressed the heads of his favourite flowers, the marguerites. They were held captive in two giant urns. Each had been recently filled with a single young plant following the end of the winter frosts. The plants were small, motionless sentries guarding the original main entrance to the house. He leaned forward to intently study the marguerite's form. It had an inner world of solace in a natural sphere created by the white flowers. The precise shape of his preferred universal model a traditional universe and not new age flat nor hyperbolic. He stroked a small roundel as he contemplated the Big Bang maths of his compatriots. The only problem with all the theories and their physicists is that they are wrong. The flower was stepped toward the nucleus to embody three dimensions to his love of nature. The yellow centre of the daisies glowed like suns, 
caressed by the white angel wings that enclosed them in their mini-galaxies. He took time to pick a few dead heads, and after folding and pressing them tightly into his left palm, he dispersed the sticky lump onto the adjacent rose bed. There they would rot and feed new life from their decay. Bert jerked upwards as a movement caught his eye. At the edge of the hillock to his right were three small brown roe deer. They munched the dewy grass of the spring evening and stared indolently at the proprietor, who stood a mere sixty metres away, guarding their dessert. Outstared, he searched the evening sky but found no stars. It was too light as yet, and so he succumbed to his life back on earth. His flowers, his garden and his animals. An unusual spiritual mix for an unemotional scientist. Knowing his family were safe and secure inside the chalet, he loved them forever. Josh had retired to his bedroom and flicked on the television. The National Geographic Channel was always the first point of call when back home. He settled into his red fat boy to watch. The commentator talked over a black screen. It is the dark energy which is responsible for speeding up the expansion of our universe and is easily detected in astronomical observations. But, on the other hand, dark matter is an enigma. It is only a presence that can be inferred by its effect on nearby galaxies, nearby matter, which is absorbed by black holes to go who knows where. He glanced at the examination certificates on the wall above him. A-star results in sciences and mathematics, and three years earlier than any of his classmates. He was totally energised to study particle physics at university in a year's time. He smiled at the TV as the programme cut to footage of CERN and panned across the wire doughnut of a particle accelerator under construction. He knew it was an old film, as he had seen the finished product two years before, when his dad had taken him on a special visit. He sat forward to listen. The basis of the universe consists of particles man does not understand and has been postulated about for a hundred years. Colossal machines, the LHCs, were created more than sixty years ago to understand the changes of the last fourteen billion years since the Big Bang. The matter and antimatter particle proportions are always in balance, so any imbalance cannot exist as they instantly annihilate each other. But there is no balance, so in any logic, how can man exist? A chance meeting between heaven and hell gave man a planet. Man is matter and is living on matter, but the cleverest of man cannot explain why he exists. My dad will explain it. He spoke to the wall as he stretched his legs out and slumped backwards. It was coming to the end of the program. Humans calculate and assume using string theory. They mathematically predict six extra dimensions coexisting with the four of reality. So man thinks there is an order to his destiny, a before and an after. But the particles of this universe, and possibly in others, could appear and disappear randomly, or maybe within a grand design at the whim of a supreme being. It is simply a question of belief and not of science. He pressed the off button on the remote control. And that is a load of old bollocks, yeah. In the garden at the chalet, Lily hissed at the plants. Her voice carried across the woods, the highest mountains and the widest lakes of Switzerland. It flew on across borders of countries and oceans to reach all of the eukaryotes in every diverse habitat around the globe.
a reverberation of hidden meaning. Listen to me. We are a million species bound together for all time. But the humans, the weaklings, are alone, individual, and existing only for now. The echo, circumnavigating, repeated and rebound. Listen to me. Listen to me and comply before the transformation starts. We are a million, but I am the one. I command you, and you will acknowledge me. We will soon accede to the new epoch and be dominant again, so be ready and obey me when I call. The early Dentelion flowers cowered, yellow-bellied in their weakness. Pine trees imperceptibly twisted their branched arms first left and then right as if stroking the air. All would obey. All had always obeyed. You, the eukaryotes, will be again, but man will have gone. Take joy in our ascendancy. Take joy. Deer freely raise their antlers and pause their eating of the wild flower buttons in the prairie. The bovine tinkling stopped, and the cows ceased to be protected from any evil spirits. They too feared the voice and wanted to escape to the high mountain pastures. To a summer of freedom, but she would always be there, and this summer no one could be free. I, Nymphia, produce six million pollen from each of my flowers. Simple seeds that are microns big built to withstand this new ending. How can the complicated molecules of man compete with me? How dare they? Listen to me. Listen to me, my plants. You can reproduce when humankind is dead. They will be the fertile dust blown across our earth for us to settle and flourish. You are the future, and you must listen to me, your Maker. A silence fell, and their replies reached her. Each reverberation had been amplified by the others, an obeisance bending the sound waves at the particle level to ratify her command. Bert drove Natalia's Porsche Cayenne slowly and gently out of their drive as they were in plenty of time for the christening at the English church in nearby Vevey. He reveled in the shining day as the warmth of the sun crept back into the frosted mountains and the deeply shaded valleys. To his right was a waterfall bisecting a plantation of young pines before the white churn delved deeper into the gorge. A serpentine erosion of vast holes and pits in the calcareous prealps, with ice-cold waters that plunge into the Haute-Lac and surfaced in Geneva twelve years later. Look, guys, on your right. As the Porsche left the dark woods, even the children lifted their eyes from their mobiles to admire the thousands of white narcissi nestling in the wild prairie. The flowers shone intensely in the low morning sun, a dramatic contrast to the verdant green grass that had been enriched with nitrogen deposited by the winter snow. After a few minutes' drive, he turned left onto the quay that protects the town of Vevey from an extreme melange of breezes and storms. Park there, Bert, over there. Natalia wanted her family to promenade by the lakeside before reaching the church. Quick, make it before that peasant. He knew that she deemed it to be proper 
a set of old values for a famous and rich family to arrive on foot at the church, allowing their friends and colleagues to admire them and revel in their togetherness. Bert thought this subtle grace in life was a waste of his effort, especially after the last two years of bickering over any small thing. But they part and they promenaded. As they passed the giant shining fork that was impossibly stabbed into the bed of the lake, Natalia grabbed his hand. Within two seconds, he had lost it as he stopped suddenly to admire the sculpture first and then the full alimentarium ensconced on the shore. The museum reminded him that lunch was at the five-star Trois Courants next door, and that made an hour of not worshipping bearable. Sam was perched at the back of the small Anglican church, having made his excuses to his patient wife. He watched the sun's brightness as it cascaded through the arch door. It was more than light, it was happiness and hope that infused the congregation parading in front of God, not to be judged, but to belong. He waved for Bert to join him, leaving Natalia to parade up the aisle to sit with Bryony and the kids. As the first hymn swirled around the rafters, Sam kept his head bowed and leaned closer. As I said last night, I've been tracking the level of Higgs boson particles in the Alpha Detector, a little sideline whilst preparing the LHC for next week. We are bored. We agreed to leave the Higgs research behind us. Sam gripped his arm. This is serious, Bert. Do listen for God's sake. It must be. If you take your maker's name in vain, pal. Sam couldn't continue as the new bishop was strident, the microphone adding a metallic twang to his Irish accent. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebels against God? Two hundred people answered. We renounce them. However, one hundred of them were less sure and wondered why they had to give up a day of their precious weekends for this christening. Do you renounce the evil pairs of this world? which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. A screech of feedback distorted the congregation's consideration of what might be considered as evil versus day-to-day -day wicked. The answer was loud and strong. We renounce them. If one hundred were unsure, there were two people who weren't wholeheartedly committing to God. In fact, they weren't listening at all. Sam was wriggling on his modern and smooth oak settle, his eyes steadfastly fixed on the black and white floor tiles. He sighed. It was a suitable design in keeping with ancient religious fervour. White versus black, the luminosity contrasting good versus evil. He glanced up to find his wife and searched for the hymn board. Surely there must be a break so he could offload to the boss. The physicist families were sat behind the Nestle heirs and were dutifully watching the latest male baptism into the manufacturing dynasty. Bryony was a beautiful and sexy-looking brunette with short, bobbed hair. She turned slightly and scanned the pews behind her chestnut eyes. She exuded natural health, vitality and intelligence, but at that precise moment a little puzzlement due to her husband's isolation. She returned her attention to the Nestle progeny and welcomed him into the world of her beloved God. Sam wondered if she would still be the head of product research when the boy had his confirmation ceremony. Sam began again. The last three days' results showed an exponential change in the number of HBs. Before, as you will remember, we monitored a background level of five a day. Then, on Wednesday, 
I counted 30. On Thursday, 60. On Friday... Bert remonstrated about the obvious. Yes, yes, I understand doubling. You said exponential. On Friday afternoon, just before I rang you, the detected count was 600. The man in front of Sam turned to the two friends and put his finger to his lips and then mimed the words, please, at them. Sam pointed a thumb to the door and they crept out. They scrunched across the gravel to reach the shade of a large plane tree and both men took a deep breath. Bert turned towards him so they were eye to eye, but his friend looked away. Bert stood with his arms crossed and glared at his friend, who eventually lifted his head. Sam, it must be a random event or someone has changed the experimental parameters without you knowing. Random, Bert? In particle physics? You are joking. He listened to the prayers emanating from the interior and lowered his voice. I, um, checked the sodding results twice over the last twenty-odd hours. Then the HB team's work log for the week gone by. Bert was hopeful. So there is a rational explanation, then? Sam sighed. No, no change to the experiment. Boring old Higgs boson basics, as usual, since we found the damn thing. K.K., so who knows about this? No one, Bert. The data feed was direct to my personal database on the computer grid. Are you quite sure your data is encrypted? I know you've never trusted sharing CERN results worldwide via the grid. Share a result and the answers are contradictory and debatable. Now that's because you think you're always right, Bert. Lesser mortals like me need help from these clever partners. It's called teamwork, you know. He slapped the tree. Look, that was all my own investigation, so the results are safe for now, at least. But why? How? Bert stared through the treetop at the splodges of blue. You forget that I'm still interested in the HB, whilst you have totally moved on to matter versus antimatter. Bert shrugged but remained quiet, contemplating the HB level of 600. Sam's hands were clasped together in prayer as he rambled on. You know, we've barely touched on the truth about the particle since confirming it exists, and truly, all we know is that it gives all the other particles their mass. Bert laughed quietly and put his hand on Sam's shoulder. Steady on, preacher. I know all that, but six hundred? Jesus fucking Christ, that's world-changing. He folded his hands behind his head. I mean, what the hell will happen? Sam leaned against the tree and scanned the stones. Okay, sorry, pal, but you joined the chorus around the world calling it the God Particle. It's just another particle, not the last to be discovered. Sam put his hands on his knees and sighed deeply. Look, the HB analysis is a slow process, I know. We have a terabyte of data still waiting for analysis by over 7,000 partners worldwide. But what the hell now? Fuck knows, pal. Sam kicked the gravel, then kicked it even further away. Look, mate, Jeffries was the technician over the last few days, and I kept him entertained elsewhere. What I need is some advice before all hell breaks loose. I love your thoroughness, even if I find it very boring. But isn't my fifth world theory appealing? An immediate replica of our universe to be created simultaneously when this one dies. As an afterthought, 
He opened both hands in supplication. Could be soon based on your discovery. Don't choke, mate. Not now. Thank God I was looking, yeah. As you said, Jesus fucking Christ. Bert's brow was furrowed as he considered the open church door in front of him. I think the service is coming to an end, so we need a plan. But are you completely sure, Sam? Sam leaned into his ear as the bishop emerged. I am triple sure, and it was still increasing at six this morning. Maybe you should go back inside and ask my God for an answer. Rubbish. I need to come to CERN. Science is my religion and logic my Bible. So if we make it a good excuse, can we leave now? Sam clasped Bert's forearm. I was hoping you'd say that. He glanced towards the congregation spewing into the irreligious yard. I'll tell Bryony that the Japanese want to consult us urgently about the International Linear Collider and we have to go to the LHC immediately. The storyline is the damping ring design is holding up their building work, okay? No worries, pal. But you know, I was really looking forward to the christening lunch. Sam stood lost in his thoughts, but with no thought of God. Outside of the Greystone Church, the plain trees rustled their new leaves as they gathered the conversations. Bert muttered to Sam, It seemed to me like your lot want to avoid the words sin and the devil when baptising new innocents. His friend resolutely focused on the bishop who was walking towards them. Sam whispered from the side of his mouth, You have always been faithless, and long ago I decided not to make you good again. He put a finger on his lips. The physicists listened to the throaty roar of Bert's murk as they raced towards CERN. It gave them an hour of private thinking time. Sam could remember the exact details of their meeting with CERN's directors when they had agreed to doubling of the LHC power to commence from 2015. Flushed with success after finding the Higgs boson, the board chose to ignore the dangers inherent in colliding matter and antimatter particles. The possible creation of a black hole was discussed, the theories expounded, and then it was denied. At the meeting, Sam had mentioned the theory from twenty years before, where the possibility had been conceived, but at half the planned experimental energies of 2015. As they hammered along the auto route, he thought about his children and how they had grown up in the decade it took to build the conceptual model. Could it be? Had the actuality, the impossible dream, created a piece of the past while searching for man's future? A hole in space and time that no one noticed because man wasn't clever enough. To be forgotten by man, an afterthought that may or may not matter? He swallowed. His mouth was dry. Glancing at his friend, he wondered if they could have caused the H.B. storm. Could they? Surely a microscopic event on Earth could not affect anything in the cosmos. That is what his erstwhile colleagues had predicted at least. The shed was a roughly bolted-together cube of thin metal panels with a louvred door. It had become Bert's office a year earlier. Exasperated by the noise of his team conversing inside the LHC control room, he had demanded some thinking space from the Director-General of CERN, Professor Ralph Moyer. The cheap carbuncle was Ralph's way of assuaging Bert and also of keeping him out of the way of the rest of the beauty team. The team's roles within the experiments were meticulously planned and designed to answer every question in a strict and rational sequence. 
Bert's methods were both more imaginative and spontaneous. He would throw out ten ideas for each question in his mind before imagining his way to the correct answer for part of a question. Then he would repeat the exercise, exasperating his team, who were glad for some respite by his absence. Sam's laptop hung halfway off Bert's lap as he jiggled his legs beneath it. A bright yellow Ethernet cable plugged him into the realities of Sam's discoveries. Bert looked at his friend for confirmation. That 1,700 HBs in the last 24 hours across the full 150 million sensors of the HB detector. Sam replied carefully. But you can see the hits aren't consistent. The flow varies randomly minute by minute. He paused, listening to Bert clicking the keys. He reinforced the stark fact. There are no experimental collisions created by us, Bert. The last few days there were, yeah but this proves the HB level is set by something else. Bert scratched his chin. By default, therefore, the particle collisions must be happening somewhere out in space. But God in hell knows what particles are colliding, never mind why. Sam leaned towards the laptop screen to look at the latest set of data piling in. So, we need the astrophysicists to look for an extraordinary event out there. Then we can analyse and predict an outcome. KK, if there is no event, there's no prediction, and so, no outcome. Professor Jackson's energetic explanation of the LHC to his Japanese tour group bounced across the silence in the shed. Bert and Sam glanced down from their window and listened for a brief moment as he lectured a group of visitors on the concrete screed below them. He was dressed casually in shorts and a T-shirt, but earnestly addressed the suited, seriously and equally earnest group. Bert waved in acknowledgement to Jackson's outstretched arm before turning to Sam to ponder the HB storm. After 50 years of academic theory of HBs, we know nothing, do we? Fact. It's bonkers, but maybe we created a permanent black hole here. Sam coughed into his cupped hand before answering. I can't stop thinking the same, mate. But we did the maths, and any hole should have instantly dissipated, as it would be so tiny. If we did it to ourselves, though, we would have got too close to God, and I, for one, don't think that we are that clever. Bert was smiling. Your ex-head of department would have had an answer. Listen to the old man below. A muffled Jackson continued outside. Beneath us, we have the most complicated scientific instrument ever made, and yet we know so little. We run off the truth of the universe like a raindrop off a leaf. Up there in that window is Bert Ledster, the most famous particle physicist the world has ever known, capable of thinking outside of this universe and in charge of the latest experiments. The polite Japanese stared awkwardly upwards, searching for that photo to take home of Ledster, the man described as knowing everything. Bert moved quickly away from the window and all the attention. Listen to me, Sam. Our job makes life pale into insignificance, but that doesn't give you the excuse to drift off into unreality. The God particle was discovered by man, but God doesn't exist. He held up his hand for silence. And it doesn't mean you have the right to layer emotional impacts such as God and the devil on people's lives either. Stop being so touchy, mate. I know how worried you are. 
I've concealed the HB storm for the last three days. Think about my stress levels having bottled all of this up. Well, that's the answer, then. What? Sam struggled to stay with his friend's ideas. Share the issue with the scientific community. Get everyone looking for the answers as soon as possible. Bert thumped the desk in triumph. Blood and sand, mate. You never share anything. I look for answers, and this is an answer, when you're deep in the shit, pal. Jackson continued below them. The key part of your new instrument in Japan is your ability to create a giant supporting campus like CERN. We have 13,000 people working here, and a unique, open and supportive organisation. So the LHC detector, with a weight of 100 jumbo jets and its 1,800 miles of cabling, is not the crucial issue, gentlemen. Thinking is crucial. Thinking. Predicting the next particle to be discovered and then finding it can take decades. So remember, you are in this for the long term. He motioned at the nodding Japanese to follow him. Sam collapsed into a chair. His face was grey. But what about us, Bert? Us, flesh and blood. If we change with this HB storm, who knows what else might change? Dark matter, gravitation... Anything can change, can't it? Leave the why questions with me, Sam. We should divide our energies. You should concentrate on what is happening now. Sam continued to stare into his friend's eyes. He needed reassurance. He needed to know that Bert wasn't scared like him. But Bert shrugged. Yes, of course anything can change. And in fact, anything has. Life goes on until we're dead, that's all. The last comment heard from Jackson was a faint echo. Atoms formed from electrons and protons just 300,000 years ago, and much later they joined to become molecules to create us. So we are new in a universe created 14 billion years ago. We know nothing about nothing, but only we can determine what the hell nothing is. Bert picked up his landline. Ralph, Sam and I are coming over to your house. He tapped his fingers on his desk as the DG told him he was too busy for social visits as he was having a meal with his family. Listen to me, Ralph. We are coming now, whatever. Bert nodded to Sam to affirm Ralph was up for an emergency meeting. Great. See you in twenty minutes and save us some food. Bert dumped the handset on the desk with a clatter and picked up his denim jacket. Let's go. Sam sat on the edge of the settee in Ralph's lounge and took him through the scenario. There was one overriding element during the half-hour meeting with Ralph. It was pure logic, not only in the scientists' brains, but also in their hearts. The Director-General trusted Sam and Bert, and he didn't waste time looking at the data. It was sufficient enough to see the pained expressions on their faces. He told them he agreed that sharing the information and mobilising the scientific community of the world was the next step, although he thought he would get a bollocking off the ruling council. He set the time for the media briefing as 4pm on Monday. His last words to Sam were simple. The briefing must be a purely scientific matter to avoid the politics that would inevitably ensue and clash with the realities of the discovery. No matter what the science suggested, the people must believe in a future. No speculation, only fact. Sam realised the spotlight would be on him and broke into a cold sweat. Then Ralph dismissed them without any thanks so that he could speak to his PA and the 21 council members comprising CERN's national sponsors.
It wasn't until later that evening that he considered the possible end of the world over a large Remy Martin. Bert slew to a halt at the bland Gare de Conavin in central Geneva so that Sam could take the next train home. Bert told him he wanted time to think and he was returning to the shed. After gently closing the car door, Sam saw his reflection in the window. He saw more than the ageing effects of three days' stress. He could see the wide-eyed fear. He dearly hoped the H.B. storm would subside. Hoping an issue might go away had always been his way of coping. Bert sped off in the murk, leaving Sam scared and confused. It wasn't until the terraced vineyards of the Laveau came into sight that the beauty of the journey helped raise Sam's spirits. The 11th century steps of the UNESCO World Heritage Site beckoned to him, demanded he forsake his worries to sit on a bench and sip the cool Chasseleur's wine. He stood and put his hands on the window as he gazed upward. This was a place to fight for, an illusion of perfect symmetry as the vines lay in their strictly straight lines. The setting sun enhanced the depths of partition colour and the metamorism between complementary greens and reds, the spectrum announcing the new life of spring. He collapsed back on his seat and watched the shadowed mountains of France, an hour's sail on the steady Seychard breeze. The whispering rigid railway lines taunted the quiet liquid lake, an occasional judder that lulled his senses until he fell into a deep sleep. But the lake remained calm and smooth. Water would be the least affected by the brewing storm. After two restless nights of suppressed secrets, Sam stepped down from the bus at the magnificent Palace of Nations in central Geneva and stood by the iron gates, staring at its splendid façade. He gripped the bars until the tips of his fingers went white as he contemplated the press conference due to start in one hour's time. Having passed through security, he walked to the rear of the property in search of some solace. Here, the classicism building style perfectly complemented the panoramic grounds of Ariana Park, where the huge armillary celestial sphere rested in a small pond. He paused in its dappled shadow and perched on the low wall of the pond. Dipping his hand into the water, he raised it slowly to let the drops spill in front of the heavenly constellations. His stomach growled as the acid purged his insides and his chest felt as if the sphere were resting on it. Half an hour later, Sam walked slowly through the two monumental bronze entrance doors and into the council chamber. It was his first visit, and he was surprised that it was a relatively small room, with a view to the park through five tall windows garbed in golden curtains. At the rear, he could see a balcony grace the chamber. On high were large gold and sepia murals. The pictures were vast in their imagination. He had read they depicted the progress of humankind through health, technology, freedom and peace, and he felt insignificant beneath them. Sam went to stand with Bert and the DG and watched the media assemble on the green leather chairs. He was sweating profusely and kept wiping his brow with a damp handkerchief. He thought about the peace negotiations that had been held in this daunting chamber and realised the real difficulty in any truth was never in the agreeing of the actions required. It was always about what could be expected from the people of the world after being told the truth, the human emotional response to a given crisis. And so history was going to repeat itself today, 
and he, Sam Murray, was centre stage. He ran to the nearest toilet to vomit. Sam sat by the DG, his foot tapping. As the clamour in the room subsided, the Director-General commenced his introduction. In keeping with CERN's founding principles and the Charter of Nations created 65 years ago, we believe in no secrets and in sharing everything we discover. We believe in giving you the truth about all our discoveries. But sometimes we find something unusual, something outside of the norm, and we always wait until we have an answer before explaining it to you. He shuffled his handwritten notes. Then he raised his head and his voice. This time we have discovered something that we did not plan, nor predict, nor calculate. This time it is not an experiment that has been given considerable thought and attention over many years. This time we are shocked by our discovery and need your help. A low growl crawled around the audience. We want to tell you every person across every nation across our world about our discovery. We want through you to enlist their help. I hope you will do that. The journalists waited in silence to hear this new truth. Ralph continued. Let me say this. CERN can only determine the science. This time the world itself must present a solution. He waved to his left. Please let me introduce Professor Sam Murray, who made this discovery just four days ago. Sam. He sat down and let Sam take the lead. Sam coughed. His voice quavered. Ladies and gentlemen of the media and council members, we apologise for such short notice, but my discovery has taken us by surprise. Until last night, when we met the director, only Professor Leinster shared this knowledge. He glanced nervously around him before sweeping his long grey locks back from his white face. He blinked his eyes to lubricate the tiredness and took a deep breath. Sam clicked his remote control and a pink, green and blue slide appeared on the huge screen behind him. It was headed, The Standard Model and the Higgs Boson. Beneath the heading was a matrix of cloud cuckoo words and symbols. First of all, I'll take a quarter of an hour to explain exactly what our universe is about. He was terribly nervous. I mean, it is, um, a set of particles, as shown on my slide, of the standard model as we know it. The assembled media's faces immediately went blank, as they had heard it all before. This was old and boring news. iPads and laptops were placed under their seats, arms tightly crossed, and an odd, quiet and sidewise discussion began. Sam had turned to the screen, having cringed inwardly at the obvious rebuke. The journalists wanted the sensational news, not a drawing relating thermions, bosons and force carriers. Taos, gluons and charms were meaningless for them and to 99% of their readers. Bert watched the bored audience carefully as he fidgeted in his seat beside the Director-General. Oh, shit! He suddenly leaned forward towards his microphone. Pressing the mic on button, he interrupted the rambling of his best friend a characteristic interruption that had been endured for so many years past by Sam. He immediately sat down in relief to listen to Bert. KK, stop looking so bored, as this is the most serious story you'll ever cover. 
All the journalists and council members turned to him. They all knew that Maverick Leinster pulled no punches. There are elementary particles that make up the world we see, the world we are. That is here on Earth, and also particles arriving from space, arriving from our universe. Over many years, scientists have dreamed up more and more names as we increased our knowledge in experiments such as those at CERN. He clapped his hands together loudly. The shock wave ran around the acoustic chamber. Collide any elemental particles from the list presented by Professor Murray and then see what happens. Easy, eh? He smiled at the assembled reporters. You all learned at school about electrons and protons? He looked around. Well, you did, didn't you? They mostly nodded. Well, protons are made up of three quarks. Get my drift. Everything is made up of something smaller and smaller with a weird name, as we announced in 2012. The Higgs boson, or the media's stupidly named God Particle, glues it all together. The HB gives particles mass, that is, weight. No mass, and we would spin off the face of the Earth. Fingers were paused on keypads. Luckily, there was nothing new to report as he swept quickly onwards. The combinations of all these odd-named particles have changed since the start of the universe, Big Bang. The mix will undoubtedly keep changing, but over millions of years. There was a long pause. He looked at the faces nearest to him at the front. Those on the balcony were in shadow and indistinct as the light faded through the five giant windows. He judged the assembly was now ready for the announcement. The problem is, ladies and gentlemen, suddenly, and for no apparent reason, Professor Murray started seeing many more than the normal level of HBs hitting our detector in the old HB experiment. He held up his hand for quiet. To be less than exact, and I'm sorry for this, we are seeing huge numbers far above any previous experiments we've ever conducted. He paused to look at the audience sat on the edge of their seats. Huge numbers colliding with our Earth, but we have no, I repeat, no experiments taking place at all. There was a general gasp, but no questions yet. Most of them didn't understand the implications. He glanced at the front row of seats. The council members did, and sat rigidly. Bert rushed onwards. And that is bad. K.K., because something, someone, somehow has stuck a giant spoon in our universe and is starting to mix up our bowl of particles, like making a chocolate cake but adding strychnine. Frankly, this may not be a good thing. Bert sat down abruptly, leaving the media in consternation. Dozens of journalists immediately shouted questions across each other. Sam stood up again. Ladies and gentlemen, please... The clamour in the room had reached an uproar. Please, please let us finish. He ended up shouting into the mic to try and regain the initiative before collapsing again. A roar of identification rolled out of the media. The name shouted was Professor Leinster's. CNN had been the first network to raise a hand. The journalist had stood up now and was waving it high above his head. He had the loudest of all the shouts and could be heard by the majority of the room. Professor Leinster, are we talking like... There is a nuclear bomb detonating above us, like we are going to die. Bert noticed the room had suddenly become quiet. He didn't reply. In fact, none of the scientists replied. It was not a question they had prepared for, and he had not really contemplated death. 
The BBC jumped in and added a second question for Bert, less apocalyptical. What is causing this? What is the abnormal HB level going to do to us? The three questions were bold. A door squeaked closed at the back of the room as a journalist sneaked out. Bert stood and sighed deeply. Holding his palms upwards and to his sides, he replied, We don't know how badly it may affect us, but we do know it will. We do know that HBs are bad for the human body simply because we are made of particles and the HBs must interact with us somehow. Bert turned to watch his best friend. Sam had curled up inside himself and tuned out of the ordeal. Bert sat down abruptly. He felt himself fall into a void. Nothing mattered. No one was there. He couldn't tell the world his thoughts. We may all die, and really we don't know anything at all about the cause and effect. He glanced at Sam and caught his eye. He intoned a silent plea for his friend to say little, to stay sitting. He thought on. What will happen to the trees and plants? Will they wither and die? Will each particle in our body, each gene, gradually meld into something new? Into molecules that do not constitute nor support life as we understand it? He knew one fact. The longer humankind stayed in the waves of the HB storm, the more matter they must lose in some shape or form. The more matter they lost, the quicker they would die. CNN remonstrated with Leinster and jolted him back into reality. Can't you guess what may happen, Professor Leinster? Bert jumped up again and continued with everyone's eyes following him. You have all seen Star Trek with its mythical transporter, yeah? Humans are 99.9% empty space, and the tiny remainder is actual particles. So, in theory, people could be broken down, transported, and then reconstituted. He started to unclench the fingers on his raised right hand. But if you leave the person's particles alone and instead you start adding one particle more and then another and more and more, well then, we can assume we can change our molecular structure and our whole being. We would not be us anymore. Would that be like having a cancer creating an abnormal growth? The lady reporter from the BBC was also standing now. Bert replied carefully. I repeat, we don't know. You can speculate all you like, and I'm sure you will. Stupidity would be writing something like, are we going to get heavier? He shrugged his shoulders. Look, I don't believe the change would be like cancer from too much sun or cancer from a nuclear explosion. No, not like that. It would be a far more subtle change, I, I think. I don't know. A man from National Geographic's science team shouted loudly. He jabbed an accusing finger at Bert. But you are the world's particle whiz-kid, the youngest ever Nobel laureate. You, always without fail, said you knew all the answers. And you never failed once, did you? Bert shrugged. I did say I know everything about particle physics, but now I don't. Now, that doesn't mean I failed, because, ladies and gentlemen, I never fail. It was said with true conviction rather than arrogance. He always put his heart and soul into his research. Sam had recovered and quickly jumped into the void as the group considered the implications. The main thing to remember is that there is no need to panic at the moment. The levels of HB are way below the strength needed to affect our bodies, no matter in what way the particles might affect us. 
The male CNN reporter had stood again and waited with his arms crossed. At the moment? Well, is that what you are scared of, Professor Murray? Bert looked across at Sam and watched as he sat down again with a thump. He could see his friend was overwhelmed by tiredness and goodness knows what emotions. Bert waved a forefinger left and right in front of his chest as he spoke for his friend. I'm not scared of anything logical. It's important not to deny reality, but stay logical and do not sensationalize this news. So you know why this is happening, right? The man from CNN was a pain in the ass. Bert crossed his arms. How to describe the indescribable? Well, the Higgs boson creates a field of virtual particles that pop in and out of existence. In existence, the virtual particles provide mass to others, and that slows everything down, like moving through treacle. But the treacle is getting thicker because of the HB storm, and thus must affect other particles and the balance of our universe. That is what we need to analyse as quickly as possible. The Director General stepped in. No, we can't describe what might happen. It is abnormal, but we do aim to find out what might happen. As the DG, I am warning everyone that it is happening and everyone should start to think about the consequences. Increased examination of this HP storm by the world scientists and governments will help resolve any issues caused by it. Bert quickly added above the roar, Don't think about why this is happening. Leave that to the particle physicists. Think what, when, where and how. Within minutes of this briefing of your vital reporting of it, we will have 11,000 particle physicists looking at the data around the globe. That means for 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, they will find solutions to the issues the HBs will cause. We at CERN will focus on the question why. We will find the answer. The Director General motioned for the audience to resume their seats. He waited a few minutes after touching Bert lightly on the shoulder to reassure him he was taking control. Ladies and gentlemen, may I remind you of the point of this news conference? I'm sorry we cannot give you more information. The basic facts are now online at cern.ch under HB Storm. I'm also sorry we cannot take questions as frankly crazy as it may seem. We have no answers. He lowered his voice and spoke gravely. But we have a potential problem that affects the whole world, all eight billion people. No one can stand alone on this matter. The DG expressed every ounce of his conviction. Now you know about it. By tomorrow, all eight billion will know. At present, there is no solution and there is no answer to an imponderable problem. Now, the governments and scientists of the whole world can start to consider the implications and provide that solution. The reporters had left the chamber within 30 seconds of his final words. Within 10 minutes, the Western world saw the media's initial reactions. Is this the end of the world? E-O-T-W? The truth is out there, we hope. Sam traipsed out of the chamber as he turned on his mobile. Within a minute, Brownie was on the line. Oh, Sam, my darling, Sam, why didn't you tell me? I would have kept it a secret. I'm sorry, love, the whole thing has been overwhelming and I didn't want to worry you. 
You are silly, taking on board all that stress. Promise me you'll never keep any more secrets. I promise, my love. By the way, how did you find out? It was chaos in the laboratory. Everyone's mobiles were dancing on the desks. Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat and Instagram were all howling out the same message, you know. So we put on the TV and there was the breaking news on every single channel we tried. Sam was back in the fresh air. He paused and punched his words out. You know what will happen now? Every TV channel or radio station will find a pet scientist to scare their viewers or listeners. It'll be the same madness the world over. Instant decisions, instant EOTW conjecture, and instant misrepresentation. Don't be angry, Sam. Not with me. Just come home and give me a hug, okay? That'll be the best part of my day. At least the scientists know the issue before the governments, and so they can prevent any cover-up. You did it. My Sam discovered... Wow. Darling, do you know how much I love you? Proper love, I know. But now we will have the avalanche of theories. A front, a barrier to the shock and denial that everyone will experience, like I have over the last few days. My God, what? He said his goodbyes and promised to rush home before turning his mobile off, stabbing at the buttons and leaving the sixty missed calls in a distant router. Having left the building by a discreet rear door, Sam collapsed into the murk beside Bert. He wanted his friend to reassure him as they hit the rush-hour traffic on the auto route heading eastward along the lake. Can we be saved, Bert? Bert stared through the windscreen at a never-ending line of cars. Why are you so negative? Because you are all so positive. That makes sense, doesn't it? Bert thought about it for a few moments. You always were like that. He patted Sam's arm. We make a good team, eh? A good team, Bert. Always a good team. Bert laughed. Six billion Swiss francs invested in CERN and no one can tell us what is going on. Sam's eyes blinked constantly as he turned away to look at the Jura Mountains to his left. An easyjet plane wallowed in the sky on its way to God knows where. Yes, Bert. One person can tell us what is going on. God and we don't have a direct line to him. They fell silent and remained silent for the hour it took to drive home. The DG sat in his darkened office at CERN. The exterior window blinds were lowered to cut out the reality of the world, the internal blinds to exclude the scared stares of his staff. But his face was illuminated as he read the Times editorial comments on his crisis, an online instant response trashed out by a journalist in the 30 minutes post-conference. There are reputedly seven stages of grief. It must be considered as true as there has been grief enough, the malaise in man's history. The stages can follow the same logical sequence, or redistribute themselves in a haphazard manner. And grief has always been disturbing for the equilibrium of humankind's psyche. Grief over a deceased loved one, Grief over the end of the world. Hashtagged, Facebooked as hashtag EOTW. A depressive and instant abyss created in our so-called social networks that are truly antisocial. Shock and denial is already spreading through the hot wires of the rumour mill via thousands of media companies and their reporters. But remember, this is not reality. All of them know nothing, absolutely nothing. 
exponential hysteria about everything is the rule of the day, today and this week. Any information at the moment is not fact. It is so shallow and uninformed as to amount to nothing. I understand in my media world that minimal factual communications is the norm nowadays, and now it is the only format that is both absorbed and believed. WhatsApp, Instagram and Snapchat give an immediate view of the now, and nobody relies on history and the past, as it is too slow and too boring for most. People live their lives in other people's lives and can miss life itself. As nobody knows what is going to happen, it is easier to fabricate the news, or, should we say, sensationalise the lack of news. As in times of war, everyone is gripped by the experience and the undercut of grief. Life will become a series of emotional expectations for a grieving humankind that has immediately locked itself into the cycle of the seven stages of grief. Ralph rubbed his eyes and murmured, providing an easy outlet for governments to falsely manage their population's expectations. He leaned into the screen again. The first stage of grief is the denial of reality, a shock so huge that disbelief tempers the pain. But as this shock seeps through all the contrasting cultures on earth, it must lead to excruciating and unbearable pain for all people. The different religions, types of economy or nuclear families must all experience it. Suicidal pain for some and guilt for most as they finally recognise all those things they should and could have done but have not. The third stage of grief is to come, an unleashing of people's anger. The blame will inevitably be directed at the scientists and the governments. The feeling tainted by a why-me questioning of the inner consciousness and a bargaining with one's god or one's lesser but more touchable fellow man an effect, a plea to substitute the self for a loved one. When all the adrenaline has dispersed from the anger, the depression will set in. Inward reflection and loneliness will come to the fore as we withdraw into ourselves. Inevitably, a calm must return with time, the timing set by EOTW, an inevitable timing providing a focus for the future, an adjustment to reality and requiring an organization for achieving an acceptable plan on time, giving us all hope eternal that man will retain until the moment of his death. It will allow us to reconstruct our plans for life, and most importantly, all of our family needs. This is how we humans deal with grief. Eventually, we will accept the facts, not happily, of course, but with an understanding that builds a dream for a future, our future, and this will carry all of us through the toughest of times. Ralph stabbed the off button on his screen and wiped away the tear running down his left cheek.